I have been preaching for the last now three weeks on a series entitled Race, Racism, and Righteousness. Race, Racism, and Righteousness. And I realize that this is a very sensitive subject. It's a very difficult subject to preach on. Yet it is so much needed. And if anyone ought to understand the root of racism, which we covered the first week, if anyone ought to understand what it means to suffer ill and experience hate, if anybody ought to understand it, and you would expect me to say it ought to be black folk. If anybody understands it, it ought to be Christians regardless of the color of your skin. It's because Christians ought to understand, we ought to understand from a biblical and theological perspective that we're not dealing with a social issue. That the root of racism is sin. And the only one who can deal with sin is the only one who can deal with sin. And that is God. And it's great to have social agendas and social platforms. It's great to have justice. It's great to have laws that protect all people. Somebody shout all people. And yet at the same token, we understand that in the most difficult times, God has left the church, the salt of the earth, here in the earth for his purpose to be not only reflections of his glory, but to be light in the midst of darkness. But if we don't understand, if we don't understand what's really going going on and know how to deal with it, then the world is ultimately lost. And so we've been, again, first week talking about the root of racism. And, and last week we, we talked about the ills that have come against, especially people of color. And we've looked at it from not only a cultural and current perspective, but also from a theological or biblical perspective. Today, I want us to go a little bit deeper. As a matter of fact, a lot deeper. And to talk about how we deal ultimately with racism and prejudice and bigotry and hate. Today, we're not just going to talk about it from a racial perspective. But we're going to talk about how you deal with your haters, Period. Joshua L. Lazard, the inaugural C. Eric Lincoln minister at Duke Chapel, he says these words, and I quote, Just a day after the massacre in the historic Emanuel AME Church of Charleston, the son of one of the victims, Sharonda Coleman Singleton, offered forgiveness to Dylan Roof. As more of the victims, he says, and family members emerged to publicly forgive Roof, He says, I myself caught between the Christian imperative to forgive that had driven them to do so and an emotion that was so irreconcilable. Anger, he says. Anger. What do we do with anger? Many of these families found a way to forgive. But how do you struggle with the anger? Today I want to talk about sometimes forgiveness just doesn't make sense. 
how do we make sense of forgiveness? <laughs> I want to invite you to the word of God, Luke chapter 23. Jesus gives us not only just a wonderful, but the ultimate example of forgiveness and the complexities, if you will, of forgiveness. Y- y'all with me? I believe that oftentimes it's not just the congregants when they hear a message, the disciples of Christ, that they're challenged. We sit here on Sundays and this is the classroom, but as soon as we leave, there is the laboratory. We speak in theory and theoretical and theological terms, but when we leave here, we have to deal with the practical application. And like with any laboratory, we want to wonder, we wonder whether or not our hypothesis from the word of God actually works. <laughs> and on this week or this past week, I am not proud to say by any means. I just believe that sometimes it's important for pastors to let God's people know that he's real. So it's interesting that I don't deal with a lot of racial tension in my personal life. Y'all looking at me and say, yeah, I know why. (laughs) But it's interesting, as soon as I said in my heart, Lord, I want to address this from your word. Started getting attacked, seemed like from every angle. And this week was no different. On Tuesday, I'm not going to give you the details, but I was at a fast food, in a fast food parking lot in my car, and uh, someone not only cut me off, but wanted to block me in. And I just, you know, like most people, okay, what's going on? And um, they were of a lighter persuasion than myself. Uh, And they began, the driver in particular began to shout explicatives out the window. I'm talking about dropping F-bombs. I mean, galore. And talking about my mama, just, I mean, just went, I was like, ah, I was waiting for Jesus to kick in. (laughs) I hate to announce he didn't show up, so I showed out. (laughs) He was probably there. I just didn't recognize him in my anger. And, you know, I just basically, I'm going to tell you what I said. But I went home and said to my wife, I said, babe, I had, I had a rough one today. And uh, they said Jesus is in the for- forgiving business. And I made him work overtime a little while ago um, because, you know, I was just letting the man know you, you don't say those kind of things behind closed car doors and shout them out the window. You got to be man enough to hit the pavement, baby. And, and and I'm just confessing, it ain't right. It ain't, I'd already seen the headlines in the News and Observer. I'd already seen the tag around my neck, taking a mug shot, determine whether I was going to smile or show one of them gangster faces in the camera. So you got to get out the car. You, you, you got to get out the car where I'm from. You say those kind of things. You got to be face to face. I was so embarrassed and ashamed of myself that I had stooped that low. So I got an F on that exam. 
Two days later, the Lord said, I'm going to give you a makeup exam. Let's see how you do. I didn't fail. But I did get a D minus. I stayed in my car. And um, nothing came out of my mouth. But you still get graded on what's in your heart. And what was up in here? And I said, Lord, I'm not going to do it today. I'm just I'm just not going to do it. Satan is not going to get the victory. All right. Just not. OK. Plus, it was a lady and I can't bop her in her mouth. <laughs> My mama taught me better. All right. So it's just it's just not. So this past week, um, my GPA on anger management is a one point oh. <laughs> and um, and yet. I'm in preparation of this sermon, and God is just all up in here convicting me. But I realize this, that I'm not racist. I'm not just saying it, because last week I said all of us, were, we have some racism inside of us. And I realize my anger came from not that I'm a racist, but I don't like, whether it's towards me or any people group, any people group that are being taken advantage of by another person because they feel like they're superior. And that stirs up, I'm trying to churchify this. It stirs up a righteous indignation. <laughs> Did that sound spiritual? So I had, I've been asking y'all to pray for me. And I can see that you haven't by the evidence this past week <laughs> in my actions. So I'm going to have to tell you, like the old folks used to say in the church, those of you who know the words of prayer, evidently most of y'all don't, but those of you who know the words of prayer, please lift your pastor up in prayer. Amen? I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And I kept saying, but forgiveness, oftentimes it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. In Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 32, Jesus gives these words, his first statement from Calvary's cross. There were also, Dr. Luke writes and says in his narrative, two other criminals. There were two thieves led with Christ to be put to death, executed. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him. They crucified Christ. They executed him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, listen to these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can can I say that one more time? Jesus prayed and petitioned the Father in his dying moments. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are possibly, in my estimation, the most difficult words to hear in all of the Bible, and I don't say that lightly. It's difficult to, not only to understand, but it's extremely difficult to do. Father, forgive them. These three words on the lips of Jesus while he was dying on a rugged cross at Calvary. 
difficult to listen to, not only from a disciple's perspective, but they're difficult to listen to for those of us who have been hurt by others, and that means all of us. And some of you are experiencing that hurt right now in the immediate context. And you hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, and immediately we're offended. These words take us to a different dimension. It's not that we don't understand forgiveness. I'm not going to even preach a sermon and try to define what the word forgiveness is. If I had to have a show of hands, how many of y'all know what forgiveness is? Raise your hand. So you know. You know what forgiveness is. It's not difficult. The difficulty doesn't come from understanding what forgiveness is. The challenge we have is doing it. Because when we hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, it makes us think, oh, Lord, I should have stayed home today. Forgiveness is a beautiful thing, church, until you got to forgive. <laughs> when we understand the context, we hear these powerful and yet sorrowful words, sorrowful words of Jesus Christ as he was hanging there being executed on a Roman cross. These are the first words that come from Christ from the cross, the first statement out of seven statements. Father, forgive them. The first thing that Jesus would say in his dying hours, and no doubt some of the most important words he would say, Father, forgive them. Before he takes his last breath while he is yet being tortured and persecuted, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Jesus asked God the Father to forgive his persecutors for their offense and the sins that they are currently committing, not just what they committed previously or the day before, the week before, or three years before. But he asked God to forgive, listen to this, in the midst of his pain and while he's still being persecuted. I said it before, but I'll say it again. Sometimes forgiveness just does not make sense. I mean, consider the circumstances. Jesus was brought to Pontius Pilate by the religious leaders on trumped-up charges. I can't believe I said Trump in the church, but I did. Um, <laughs> he was taken to Judge Mahal and made a malefactor in a makeshift courtroom. The ludicrous and lambastous and outlandish lies that came from their lips as they falsely accused Jesus. His Roman executors took a whip and gave him 40 lashes minus one in judgment hall, ripped the flesh off his back, his neck, his face, and his chest. They made Jesus, while he was bleeding, carry his own cross being through the streets and towns while he was jeered at and mocked by the people, climbing Golgotha's hill. They hung him between two thieves, one on the left and one on the right, and one had the nerves to be sarcastic, making remarks and mocking Jesus as being the one who can save himself. If you can save yourself, then save me too, bruh. The embedded bri they embedded briars in his head as a mock crown to imitate him as king of the Jews and put a sign above his head and say, here is the king of the Jews. The soldiers stripped him of his clothing. And then began to gamble for his clothing as souvenirs. And Jesus' first words is to look toward heaven and say, Father, forgive them. That don't make sense to me. I'm struggling with it. The only thing I can say, 
Jesus is a better man than I am. That's the reason why he's the great I am. Now, y'all looking at me, don't judge me. I started with me first because y'all know y'all wouldn't have done that either. Father, y'all can't handle a social media Facebook post about something negative about yourself. You know you can't handle nails. Everybody always talking about if it was me, I would have did hush. There's something that I noticed, and there's a point I want to make, but I can't make. Notice that Jesus says something here that stands out to me. Jesus makes his petition, his prayer unto the Father. Notice what he says, Father, forgive them. But what he did not say is, Father, I forgive them. Neither did he ask and say, God, give me the strength to forgive them. He just said, Father, you forgive them. Now, I, I want to make that point, but I can't make that point because my flesh is driving me to make that point. My anger, my own personal feelings is, is making me make that point. My own hurt, is, it, it wants me to inject my interpretation in the text, but my scholarship of the text and, and my hermeneutical ethics won't allow me to bend the words of Jesus and reconstruct it for my own gain to be able to say, Father, you forgive them, but I ain't forgiving them. I dare eisegete the text. But the truth of the matter is, I can't say that because Jesus came into the world. For this moment, he came into the world to die for our sins, make sacrifice on our behalf for our guilt and our shame to suffice the anger and the wrath of the Father. This justice was against us, but God gave us mercy because the blood sacrifice of his son. That's the reason why he came. So in asking the Father to forgive them was part of the process of his work to forgive. But if it was me, I'm just saying, church, I would have said, Father, you forgive them, but I'm not. Church, sometimes forgiveness just does not make sense. But, but here's a big question. How can Jesus, in the midst of his hurt, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his frustration, in the dying moments, muster strength and pray on his enemy's behalf and for the benefit of his enemies. Father, forgive them. Here's what Jesus' words, what, what, what makes Jesus' word even more difficult when he says, Father, forgive them. What he, what he did was put an attachment, an addendum, if you will, to these words. He says, listen what he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Are you serious? Are you trying to tell me, Jesus, that these criminals are ignorant of what they are doing? That makes this even more problematic for me. Are you trying to tell me, Jesus, that grown men that came into this world, if you will, with a moral code of conduct chip built into their consciousness like everybody else doesn't know the difference between right and wrong? Are you trying to tell me that these men that taught the law and upheld the law of righteousness before Jehovah God doesn't know the difference between right and wrong? Are you saying that these men who lied on you don't know what a lie is from the truth? 
Are you trying to tell me your haters are ignorant of what hate is? Are you trying to tell me a Roman governor who realized that he didn't have any evidence to convict you and to have you executed and even went out and said, I find no fault in condemning this man and washed his hands is innocent. Are you trying to tell me these Roman soldiers driving nails in your hand and dividing your clothes that they don't know what they're doing? There's got to be something else to this text. I need to read between the line and between the words. But this is what I discovered. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. That, that's hard. And he says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. Now, now, now stay with me, church, because some of y'all are goody two-shoesers and you, you, don't, you don't think this applies. Jesus says, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, Father, forgive them of their innocence, because if you're innocent, it ain't nothing to forgive you for. He said, Father, forgive them of their ignorance. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus asked the Father to forgive them of their ignorance is because it is their ignorance and in their ignorance where their first sin was committed. And because of their ignorance, all of the other sins stem and flowed out of that. You see, if Jesus is asking God the Father to forgive them of something, there must be something to forgive them for. It's cause and effect. So what is it that he's saying? Forgive them of. Forgive them for they do not know. Forgive them of their ignorance. What we need to know is that ignorance is a sin before God. And many, if not most, of our sins stem out of our ignorance, our unknowing. See, we somehow or another, I don't know if we taught in the church, we just taught on the streets. That if we don't know, then we can't be held responsible for. I, I used to hear that growing up in the church. I had some of my friends say, I ain't going to Bible study because the more you know about God, the more you're held accountable. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, you and you going to die dumb in hell. That's all. That's, <laughs> see, I didn't know it was going to be this hot. Let, let, let me see if that let me see if that philosophy works with the laws of man and of the land. You driving down the street, you flying down the street, and a police officer whoop 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 pulls you over. Come to car, driver's license registration, and you say, "What's the problem, officer?" You know how we always say that. What's the problem, officer? <laughs> and let's just say you genuinely did not know, right? He said, "Well, you were speeding." I said, oh, okay. You got, you got two good reasons why you ought to be let go. Because number one, oh, I, I, I wasn't aware of our speed. As a matter of fact, I wasn't aware of my speed at the time, how fast I was going. Okay, okay, that's excuse number one. I was ignorant, didn't look down at the speedometer of how fast I was going. And then secondly, officer, uh, I, I didn't see any speed limit signs, so I wasn't aware of what the speed limit was or is on this street. Bring that to court with you, all right? Just just see how it works for you. They'll probably give you three tickets. One for showing up and giving something so stupid because it does not work. Because, because we did not know does not exempt us from the law. Officer, I didn't know how fast I was going because I wouldn't look at speedometer. It was your responsibility to look at the speedometer. 
I didn't know because I didn't see any posted signs or they're probably there. I just didn't see them. If you don't believe that we're working the law of the land, it certainly won't work in God's economy. They give you so many different scriptures, but just out of Numbers 15, 27, God says this. Listen carefully. If any soul sin through ignorance, you got that? If any soul sin through ignorance, in other words, you weren't aware that it was a sin, but let's see, he still calls it a sin. Then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year for a sin offering. Now, if you're innocent because you didn't know that it was sinful, you don't have to bring a sin offering on account of your sin. Because then you would be ignorant in the eyes of God. We're not ignorant in the, the, the courtroom of the land. We're not ignorant in the classroom. I didn't know we were having a, an exam today. It didn't make any difference if you knew you were having an exam and you went on a cruise with your family and then get the memo. Missed seven days of school. You got an exam. The Jews and the Gentiles. They didn't know that. And they were ignorant that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christoph. He's the savior of the world. He's the son of the living God. They didn't know that, but they should have known it. You've been reading the words of the prophets. You've been teaching in the great expectation of the Messiah to come. And just because you don't know doesn't mean that you're innocent. So the first thing that, that Jesus asked the father to forgive, which is the first sin, which all of the other sins flowed out of. Forgive them of their ignorance. There are a lot of people that sin against us and they hurt us. Do they know what they're doing in terms of the act? Yes. But they have no idea how badly it hurts us. It's not until you hurt you realize how bad it hurts. Not only that, but like that with the prodigal son, most folk when they hurt us, don't realize that they also hurt God. The prodigal son, when he came out of the pig pen, said, and I'll go home and I'll say to my father, I have not only sinned against you, that's the person, that's the horizontal, but I have sinned against heaven, that's God. You got to understand that when we hate on other folk, we're hating on God because they're all created in God's image and after his likeness and they are his masterpiece. And he thought enough of them while we're hating on them to send his only begotten son to die for them. Didn't make any difference what their behavior looks like and what their attitude looks like. I say it again, sometimes forgiveness just does not make sense. There's a difficulty in forgiving others. Have y'all noticed that? It's getting real quiet in here. Y'all all right? We still here? There's a difficulty in forgiving others. But the big question is, why is it so difficult to forgive people? Why is it so difficult to forgive people who have wronged us and people who have hurt us? I, I could give you several reasons, but I'm going to give you only one answer. Is that all right? Just one for time's sake. One of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason why it's so difficult for us to forgive others is because of our egos. It was Sigmund Freud who popularized the word ego in his, his writings on psychology, but he didn't invent the word. The word ego comes actually from the Latin word, believe it or not, that means I. <laughs> I. It, it really is, could be defined as, as, as one self-image or self-worth of himself. 
is what do I think about myself? How do I value myself? That's what ego is. And one of the greatest challenges of offering forgiveness is our ego, but ego, it has a deceiving nature to it. It has a deceiver, deceiving connotation because that my ego won't allow me on its own to offer forgiveness because offering forgiveness when I'm hurt is a sign of weakness. It doesn't match with who I am and my self-esteem and my self-worth. So the thought of forgiving the offender for the offense, we feel like we are not only forgiving them of their actions or words that cause us uh, the pain and the hurt, but that all of a sudden the actions are acceptable. And that's not necessarily true, but that's the way we feel. Our egos demand that we refuse to forgive. Our egos provide us with this unsurmountable amount of power and control over the one that hurts us and keeps them at bay, at least so we think. So by refusing to show mercy and to reconcile the conflict, we forever hold this condemning and this this, this inescapable guilt over their heads. And in the end, the allurement and the enticement of non-forgiveness that, that causes our individual egos to rise. is this side of us that wants to punish folk for what they have done to us and the hurt that they've caused us and the wrongdoing. But then hopefully we come to the realization that the one, only one who is truly punished and imprisoned is ourselves. We refuse to forgive. We don't really hurt other people as much as we hurt ourselves. It's our own ego that provides this, this self-preservation mechanism. So we think. So our ego equips us and it arms us with the ability, if you will, to be unforgiving, holding others at bay, and we can punish them and keep our, keep our hands on their head as they're either swinging or even if they've ever surrendered. But my own ego, my, my I, my sense of self-worth, uh, it says to us, uh, I can't believe I allowed them to hurt me and they'll never hurt me anymore. I can't believe I allowed them to embarrass me. I can't believe that they allowed them to kick me when I was down and they kicked me even when I was up. I can't believe that I allowed them to take advantage of me and scandalize my name. So therefore, I refuse to forgive them. So therefore, I'm going to punish them by not only bringing justice, but recompense. Because the reality is, if I truly forgive someone, listen to me carefully, if we truly forgive someone, we remove all of the arrows of hurt and harm out of our quiver, and we sever the string and we break the bow. We're not able and capable of hurting them anymore. And to be honest with you, we don't like that feeling. It makes us feel vulnerable and open for attack. It makes us, let me just say a word to guys, it makes us feel punked out. And I ain't going out like that. But then the reality is, you see, as long as you hold on to a person in your anger and want to hurt them, the longer you hold on to the harm and the hurt that they caused you, the more you can distance them by forgiving them, the further away you push the hurt and the harm. But you got to be close and hold them close. Meaning, i.e., thinking about them all the time, plotting against them, doing evil things against them. And that's all that does is stir all of the hurt from the past back up again. Have you ever noticed a lot of times the people that we try to hurt, they done gone on about their merry way. They just, <laughs> they speak to you. You say, hey, and you're like, I know you ain't speaking to me. 
And then they're thinking, I know you ain't still mad, are you? Have you ever noticed even, ain't talking about me and my wife because we don't do this because we have a perfect marriage. And, uh, <laughs> but have you ever noticed even sometimes as couples, it'll give you something that, that might be even in your own house or a dating relationship or whatever it might be. But husband and wife could disagree with something. You get a little angry, a little hot about it. Tell me, I don't believe her. I don't believe her. She can, yeah, nah, nah. You hot, right? And you notice a few hours go by. Some folks, y'all just hold on to stuff for a long time. It's been like six months. And you still going to make him sleep on the couch, right? It's a, but it's like, and sometimes like something can happen in the morning. And by afternoon, you, you pretty much have forgot about it or it's dissipated. Your anger is, is settled. And that person could say something funny. They're in the kitchen and you sitting at the table. They say something funny. You might even be talking to you to say something funny to somebody else. But you don't even want to show them that you're laughing. You know why? Because you just want to hold your hand on the head. You got what I'm saying? I'm not giving in to that. Because, listen, you're going to pay for what you said, what you done, and what you disagree with me. You're going to pay for it. I'm not, it ain't going to be that easy. You just, I'm not going to let you back in my circle like that. So I'm not showing that I'm friends with you. I got a giggle, but I ain't get a laugh on that one because that was that guilty giggle right there. Nelson Mandela said it this way. He said, resentment is like drinking poison then hoping it will kill your enemies. How are you going to drink the poison? Because that's exactly what hatred and anger is, that unsettled, uncontrolled anger, that lingering anger and animosity. That's what it really is. That's what that resentment, that, 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 that I got to get revenge. No, it ain't going to be that easy. So many mothers and fathers that wind up in family court, and you're not there really on behalf of the kids' goodwill. You're there to pay each other back. Oh, he's going to pay for this. Oh, she ain't get my money. Really? Is it really, is it about the kids making sure they got not only all the material things that they need, but that somehow or another you figure out how to make their world a little bit better as a result of us not getting along together. To be, to be honest with you, it takes way more energy to hate and to continue to be angry with someone than it does to love. Here's the reason why. It's because hate is natural, meaning if it's natural, it has to be manufactured by us. In order for us to manufacture hate, and resentment, we got to keep working at it to keep making it. And when it settles and we see them or think about them, we got to regenerate it all over again. And it just takes so much energy out of our life. We stress out. You wear, listen, you, you wear relaxed dreams, but you're stressed out in your heart. It took me two days to think about that. You know, I was holding a pair of relaxed jeans and up in the store and I was stressed. But love, on the other hand, is not natural, it's supernatural. So we don't get stressed out in really loving people. Listen to me carefully. It's because love is manufactured by God and is maintained by God. The only thing we have to do is submit ourselves to God and take our hands off of the hate and the anger. And I'm going to ask you, which would you rather do, surrender to God, or would you rather keep constantly fighting, trying to hate on somebody else? But notice Jesus asked for forgiveness and he for his enemies even before they were even aware of their sins and even before they had asked 
for forgiveness. <laughs> I mean, how in the world do you forgive sorry people and they ain't admitted that they're sorry and they're too sorry to realize that they're wrong? Can you get all that in the tweet? Because one of the greatest myths about forgiveness is that we only forgive those who have come to us. Yeah, I forgive them, but they got to come to me. They're going to have to admit that they were wrong. Well, I, I forgive them, but they, they, no, 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 they ain't going to be like that. No, no, no. You ain't going to just do all your dirt and get away with it and then talking about, well, I'm sorry. No, 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 they ain't going to be like that. And I wonder, if God was to use the same principles that we use for forgiveness against us, what would it look like? Yeah, well, why don't you try them one day? But the reality is God has forgiven us before we ever recognized that we were sinners and that we had sinned and transgressed against them. Paul said it this way when he wrote to the, the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, because of his great love, because of his, the greatness of his love with which he loved us, even when we were, listen to the tense, even when we were dead in trespass. Not when we got ourselves together. Not when we came to him and confessed us. But we were dead in our trespasses and he made us alive together in Christ Jesus. I'm going to wait until they, okay, God said, he said, okay, I'm going to wait until you get your stuff together. Don't forget, we probably commit more sins in our ignorance than we do of what we're really aware of. Then Jesus instructs us, he says in Luke 6 and 27, but I say to you, love your enemies. Notice the, t- the tense again. And notice what he says, love your enemies, which means if, if he say love your enemies, it means that they're still your enemies. They, he didn't say love your friends that used to be your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good, present tense, to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. The word bless here means to speak well of. In other words, we, I ain't going to get on social media and, bl- and blast them, but I'm going to bless them. And don't be trying to get all super spiritual. I'm just blessing so-and-so today. And you know we realize we're really cursing them. Then he says, pray for those who spitefully use you. I'm going to say it again. Sometimes forgiveness just doesn't make sense. But what we're here today is try to make sense of forgiveness. The only way we can do that is to see how much God has loved and forgiven us. We owe that to others. So let me give you just a few reasons that we're going to get out of here and go and forgive somebody. There's a few reasons why we should forgive. Number one, I believe that we should forgive is because we're obligated as Christians to forgive. I mean, we have an obligation. I ain't talking about the world. I ain't talking about those who don't know Christ. I'm talking about us, those who name the name of Jesus, the one who has forgiven us of our sins. And we said, and I accept that gift. The question is, what are you going to do with the gift now? We're obligated to forgive. Forgiveness is not an option for Christians. You ain't got to live with this person. You ain't got to like that person, but you got to learn how to forgive them. You got to learn how to release them. You got to learn how to get rid of that anger, that animosity, and that revenge. Ephesians 4 and 32 says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you. Even just as Christ has forgiven us, we ought to forgive others. I said it before, forgiveness is a beautiful thing until we have to forgive. We love to be forgiven. Colossians 3.13, Paul says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, even as uh, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, 
so also must do the same. Jesus even said it this way, if you want to be forgiven from the Father, you got to forgive others. So Peter said it this way, and I don't like this verse. I'm just going to, I ain't going to lie to you. I ain't going to try to front with you. I don't like, I just don't like it. I, I, I got to live it and, and, and struggle and submit to it. Just because I'm the preacher, I ain't got to like everything God says. I love God. Am I right about it? You, you might love your mom and daddy, but you don't like everything they tell you to do. Am I right about it? I, I'm growing. Can y'all pray for me? Amen. I'm growing. I ain't there yet. And so there's some stuff that he says is just hard. And listen to what he says in, in Matthew 8 and 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall I, uh, shall I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Seven times? Up to seven. In other words, the Jewish law required seven times. And he's talking about seven times in one day. That'd be, that'd be, whoa, that'd be, whoo, that would be big. Somebody hurt you seven times in a day and you forget that that's big right there even that right there and i can see peter just popping his own robe right and he's just talking about how, how many times should I forgive him seven times did y'all hear that boy just seven times i'm willing and jesus says what you know forgive him seven times 70 in one day seven times seven is that was that 440 is that about right 490 490 times in one day here's what jesus is saying first of all he ain't saying that you ought to count somebody's faults and offenses against you in one day. You get up in the morning, ah, that's number one. That's, that's number one right there. <laughs> you got 439 more to go. You out the door. Now what he's saying is you don't sit around counting people's faults. Just forgive. Let, this is understand. Let me play on the word forgive just for a moment. To forgive means to F-O-R-E, give. In other words, I'm going to start giving to you before you even offend me. I got to start setting my heart in motion because I understand that you're human. I understand you're not perfect and you're going to make some mistakes. And some of your mistakes not only going to hurt you personally, they're going to hurt people around you. And I'm going to be one of those people that you hurt. And so therefore, I need to start saying, God, prepare my heart. They're cool today, but I know that it's coming they're going to say or they're going to do something that's going to hurt me. So start preparing me to forgive. F-O-R-E, give. And to forgive means to pay a debt that you don't owe. It means that they owe me respect. They haven't given it to me. So what I'll do in my forgiveness is I'll respect them, pay the debt and the deficit that they owe me. That's the reason why I say, he say when, he, when they're cursing you, you bless them. In other words, they didn't respect you enough to say they're cursing you, saying bad things about you. And this is how you respond to it. We respond to it in genuine forgiveness. We say good things about them to settle the debt that they owe us for their disrespect towards us. So I have nothing else to say because the only thing I can say is nothing but good. You can always find something good about somebody to say. Well, as mama say, if you can't find nothing good, don't say nothing at all. Dr. King said it this way. He said, forgiveness is not an occasional act, but it's a, it's a constant attitude. Forgiveness for a believer, for a Christian, it's a way of life. I, I, I didn't say it didn't hurt. I didn't say it ain't going to make you cry. I, I, I didn't say that sometimes you just, you want to grab somebody by the throat. I'm not going to even say that you don't grab them. 
But I am saying forgiveness says let them go. <laughs> let them go. Let it go. Think about it. It's... The second reason why we are to forgive is not only because we're obligated because God has forgiven us through Christ Jesus, but also because forgiveness not only sets our enemy free, but it liberates us. I talked about that a minute ago. Lewis Smead said this way. He said, to forgive is not just to set the prisoner free. Excuse me. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that you were the prisoner. We set ourselves free. C.R. Strahan. I don't think he's in the kingdom of Michael Strahan, but anyway. He says, forgiveness has nothing to do with absolving a criminal of his crime. But it has everything to do with relieving oneself of the burden of being a victim, letting go of the pain, and transforming oneself from victim to survivor. As long as you want to hurt folk and you still want to be hostile and angry towards them and resentful toward them, you're not only hurting yourself and imprisoning yourself, you're causing pain to yourself. You'll always be the victim and you'll never, listen, I'm going to go beyond being a survivor and say you'll never be the victor and the conqueror that Christ called and designed you to be. Tap your neighbor and say, just let it go. Take a hand down. Say, just let it go. The third reason why we ought to should forgive. Because offering forgiveness to our enemies, it sets us up for the plans and the purposes of God in the midst of our pain. We'll say it again. In forgiving others and in the process of forgiving others, it sets us up for the purpose and plans of God. In other words, <laughs> in other words, you got to understand that Whatever happens to us, a sovereign God not only allows it to happen. I'm going to take it a step further because this is the word of God. But he designed it to happen. Nothing just happens, happens circumstance or essentially or accidentally to us. When Christ's haters, for instance, were nailing him to the cross, they didn't understand, first of all, they weren't able to do any of those things unless God had not only allowed them to nail his son to the cross, but already predetermined that they would nail him to the cross. It was through their evil mind, their evil hearts, and their wicked hands that they nailed him, but God the Father set it up. Somebody shout, he set it up. I mean, look at the, look at the scriptures, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, and listen to what Paul says to the Jews who crucified Christ. Him, Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose. He was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken lawless hands and crucified and put him to death. The father set his son up to be crucified by their evil hands and work. Is here's the reason why. Because he has a plan and a purpose that's much bigger than our comprehension to understand it. But notice this in Romans 8 and 32. He says this. He who did not spare his own son. He didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He delivered him up. It's like taking your child that has committed a crime, or the Christ and committed a crime, make the point, and putting him in the car and driving him down to the police station. And the father drove his son down to the police station, not for his crime, but for ours. And he gave him up. That justice might be served. And that we might be forgiven freely of all things. What does it look like? That's the horizontal picture. But look at the the vertical picture in our daily relationships. Remember the story of Joseph, Genesis chapter 50. Joseph's brothers did him in and all the stuff, the dirt that they did against him. And then 
they finally meet up with Joseph. Joseph is the primary uh, prime minister of grain or food in, in Egypt. Second in command. They're starving. Not, 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 we, we know the words I'm about to say, but do you understand what it really means? And so uh, understand that even in this process of reconciliation, Joseph was like Kelvin, and he's like you, whatever your name is, is that he struggled and tried to set, set one of his brothers up. <laughs> he tried to frame him. I'm going to pay you back for what you did for me. But God interceded, and he understood there's a plan that's much deeper than that. And the text says, Joseph's words, but as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Did y'all get that right there? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As for your coworker and for your neighbor and whoever it might be, you meant it for my bad, but God designed it for my good. And the reason being is because he had a purpose and a plan for this. I need to be nailed up against the wall so that God can settle me down and so he can pour into my life to take me where I need to be that I will not get there on my own. The fourth reason, I'm going to leave on this one, that we need to forgive others because God uses the hurt and pain that others has placed on us in order to bless us. He uses the hurt and the pain that others have placed on us in order to bless us, but there is a condition in the blessing. (laughs) I'm going to invite you to go with me real briefly to the book of Job. In case you're new to the Bible, that's not job. And if you're unemployment, it might look real good right now. They got a book of jobs right in the Bible. I should be going to church more often. The book of Job. When we started Job chapter one, we understand he's a perfect and upright man, all this. And it wasn't that Satan came to God and asked for permission to harm Job. It was God who came to Satan. (laughs) He said, have you considered my servant Job? No, he's got a purpose and a plan said, I tried, but you got a hedge around him. God says, I'm going to open up the gate so you can go through the hedgerow. You can do this, but you can't do that. God set the limitations. And Satan went to work. And when we look at Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and he lost everything. His kids, his children were were all killed. His, his workers were all killed. And he lost all of his possessions, his livestock, his his home, everything just, just gone and his His health is failing greatly. But then we turn to chapter 42. We go from chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2, and we go to chapter 42. And did I not mention that the saints in the church are accusing Job and saying, Job, we want to pray for you, but brother, you got to confess your sin because God don't let this kind of stuff happen on righteous people. You must have done something wrong. Have we got any bruised righteous folk in the room? I'm just asking. I ain't trying to be nosy. I just want to know if you ever been bruised, but you still love God. And look at chapter 42 in verse 10 and see what God did while Job's haters were hating on him. He lost everything. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Now, I wanted to stop at the beginning. And if I was in a prosperity movement, I was saying the Lord restored Job's losses. That's what it takes. It takes faith. You have faith and God will restore your losses. That sounds real good, but there's a dot, dot, dot there. He says, and the Lord restored Job's losses. Notice the condition. When he prayed for his friends. When he asked God to forgive him, when he asked God to restore them, then God blessed Job. 
And notice how God restored Job's losses. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice this much. Somebody say deuce. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Twice as much as he had before. Then all of his brothers and his sisters and those who had been acquaintances with him before, even those that no doubt was probably talking about on his back, came to him and he ate food with them in the house and they consoled him and comforted him and all the adversary and all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. And notice what God touched the hearts of those around him to do. And each one of them gave him a piece of silver and a ring of gold. Same folk that talked about you. God uses them to come back and bless you. Now, now I got to say this and then we're going to get out of here. Now, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For, listen to this, see if it makes sense. For he had 14,000 sheep. God gave him 14,000 sheep in the end. But if you go to Genesis chapter 1, it says that he had 7,000 sheep and he lost them all. But in 42, he says, after losing everything, God doubled it and gave him 14,000 sheep. He gave him 6,000 camels in the end. But if you go to the beginning, he only had 3,000 camels. He gave him 1,000 yoke of oaks and oak oxen. But in the beginning, he only had 500, 1,000 female donkeys. But in the beginning, he only had 500. Now, now listen to this carefully. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. He gave him seven sons and three daughters. And he's getting up in age. But he gave him, he lost seven sons and three daughters in the beginning. But in the end, God gave him seven sons and three daughters. Now, now my question to God is, well, if you double the oxen and you double the everything else, why didn't you give him 14 sons and six daughters? And I heard a voice from somewhere say he couldn't handle it. <laughs> I don't know where that voice came from. He couldn't handle it. He, he, no, no. There was no need for him to double his children. Here's the reason why. It's because he had in the beginning seven daughters and seven sons. And he lost them through the transition of death. But the text says that he was a righteous man and the priest of his household. And his household feared God. So when he blessed him with the seven daughters and sons in the end, God already knew that he already had seven daughters and sons, seven sons and three daughters in heaven waiting on him. He gives them seven sons and three daughters now, and in the end, he's got 14 sons and six daughters. God is not only good at math, but he's good at planning out our lives. Am I ever got a witness? And, and, and not only that, babe, you don't mind me saying this, but the text says, if I can Detroitize this thing just a little bit, the Detroit, the, 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 the text says after that, his seven sons and three daughters, and listen, his daughters were finer than frog's hair. Y'all ever seen frog's hair? That's just how fine they were. Said they were admired by all the men of the land. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Now, he wasn't saying his first daughters were ugly. (laughs) But he said what he was saying. But his next set of kids, they look real good. Y'all got what I'm saying? So this is what I'm saying ultimately. Listen, God has a way 
of allowing your haters to become your elevators. Stop trying to bind and curse everybody that don't like you. God is using them to promote you. Now don't go by the office tomorrow and swing by the desk and say, thank you for the lift. Because <laughs> haters go hate. But we got to learn how to love them. Just the way Christ has loved us. God has loved us unconditionally. I mean, unconditionally. So God has a way of, listen, learning how, teaching us how to forgive others. Mark Twain said it this way. Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel of those who have been crushed. In other words, the the, the more people hate us and come against us, whether it's racial, whether it's in in the same family, no matter where it comes from, it hurts. But we got to learn how to forgive even when forgiveness doesn't make sense. Because forgiveness is what we need in order to reconcile. And forgiveness is what God used to reconcile us to himself. Now, I want to say this, and I'm definitely going to close. Some of y'all saying this sermon got a lot of doors on it because he even said he's going to close three different times. I'm at the back door going down the back step for real right now for real. That doesn't mean that we stop marching. That doesn't mean that we stop demanding justice. But it means that while we're marching and we're demanding justice, we don't have a heart filled with hatred and anger. Y'all got what I'm saying? God is a just God and he demands justice. And listen, if there is no justice, there can't be any mercy applied. You can't apply mercy to something for for those who have not been convicted or they have been found wrong in it, just like us, for instance. God has loved us with an unfathomable love. He has forgiven us with a love that surpasses all of our comprehension. And the question is, in him loving us, what are we going to do with the love that he's bestowed upon us? And can he trust us to love others? Let me close with this for real. With the illustration of Thomas A. Edison. He invented this contraption called a light bulb years ago. And after he invented the first light bulb, he decided to mass produce them, if I use that term. And it would take a group of men 24 hours working straight to produce one light bulb. He would store those light bulbs upstairs and downstairs is where they would make them in the laboratory. And there was a young intern there, a young boy, he handed him a light bulb that man had been working 24 hours on. Told him to take him upstairs and set it in the holder that he had the case. And as the young boy was walking up the stairs, you can imagine he was nervous, looking at the light bulb, holding it with both hands and watching every step ever so carefully as he walked up the stairs. You can already got ahead of me. You already know what happened when he got to the top stair. He was so nervous, lost his balance, dropped the light bulb and broke it. Men had to go back to work and work another 24 hours to make that light bulb that had been now been broken. You know what Edison did? Called the young nervous intern back over and gave him the next light bulb. He said, take it up the stairs. That's true forgiveness. We're willing to forgive someone. Oftentimes we're willing to give them a second opportunity. Some folk you got to put on the other side. They just can't be trusted, but you're not going to hold hostility against them. There's certain things that God won't even trust us with. 
because he knows that we can't be trusted or we're irresponsible with it. But at the same token, he still loves us and he forgives us. I wonder if you can start making your mental list of those you not only need to forgive, but those that you need to go to and ask for forgiveness. Not just pray, Father, you forgive them, but God, give me genuine grace that I might be able to genuinely forgive them. You looking at a blessed man, here's the reason why. I've been hated on so many times in my life, and especially even in ministry, by the people who are supposed to love you the most. And every time I'm pinned up against the wall and every time I feel like I'm persecuted, the darts and the arrows come, I have to go back to God's word, and I realize sometimes forgiveness doesn't make sense. But I'm obligated because he's loved me unconditionally. So I'm learning to love others unconditionally. Let us pray. Just because we forgive doesn't mean that we forget. (laughs) I know the word of God says that God has thrown all of our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. But to say that God has erased them from his memory bank means that he is not an omniscient God and knows all things, that he has the ability to forget he does not. When it says that God has thrown all of our sins in the sea of forgetfulness and he remembered them no more, it means that he will never bring our sins up before us. He has stored them away and we can never be charged for the crimes that have been removed from his court docket. That's what we need to do for others because God has so faithfully done that for us. I'm not going to bring it back up again. I'm not going to throw it in your face again. I'm not going to harbor it in my heart. I just got to let it go. It's a process. I know it's a process, but by the grace of God, We can do all things. When we want to get a new car and get our credit approved, we say, by the grace of God, I can do all things. But when we need to forgive, you can do all things through Christ. You may be here today and don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the first place we start. Is recognizing his forgiveness towards you and towards a lost world. That's all of us. Recognizing all have sinned and come short of his glory, but recognizing even more so that he loves you. God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son to down the cross for you and for me and for the world. But right now, this is between you and God. The question is, what will you do with this free gift that he's given you in Christ Jesus? This free gift called forgiveness and eternal life. What will you do with the Christ that desires to live inside of you? Will you accept him or will you reject him? If you're here today and You want to go home not only forgiven, but Christ residing and living in your heart. Will you ask him to come in? Will you invite him to come in? And while you're inviting him to come in in your own way, and trusting Jesus not only as your Savior, but as your Lord and Master of your life, will you just raise one hand so I can see? You don't have to stand up or come down. Just raise one hand and say, Lord, here I am. I'm the one. God bless you, my sister in the back. I see your hand. I'm the one making the decision to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior today. Raise that hand. Lord, here, I'm the one to surrender my life to you. I want to not only be forgiven, but I want you to take residence in my heart. Father God, we give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, and thank you for forgiving us. And Lord, forgiveness, we realize, is not a feeling, because some days we don't feel forgiven. But forgiveness is a fact. The debt has been canceled. Lord, you have canceled it through the son of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice. God, now help us to live like free yet responsible people. You have liberated us so that we might live freely unto you and not be held by the bounds and bonds of, of Satan and sin. God, give us the grace, O oh Father, to love 
Lord, those that hate us, oh, Father. Lord, that those that don't realize just how much hurt that they're committing against us and ultimately you. Lord, heal our land and let it begin and take place through the church, oh, God, the bride of Christ. Let us be healing agents and conduits of your love and mercy. Let us stand and hold hands together, red, yellow, black, and white, Father, that we might fight for and demand justice. But let we stand, let, let us also stand there as recipients of your mercy and grace. God, the question is, what do we do when we are violated? We stand and we fight, but we do it in love. Lord, I thank you today, O oh Father, for your people that you brought to this place. And I pray that we leave this church today being difference makers. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Come on, let's magnify the Lord in this place. Our deacons and ushers are coming for our communion supper. We invite all of you that have made a decision to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior in your life.